Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Rani Henrik Anderson, who holds a PhD in history from the University of Tempere and is currently a senior lecturer at the University of Helsinki. He's published topics in Native American history and has held a position as a visiting research fellow at Indiana University where he worked with Lakota experts Ray DeMolly and Doug Parks. Uh, also on the show this morning is David Postumus. David holds a PhD in anthropology and is the author of All My Relatives, Exploring Lakota Anthology, Belief, and Ritual, and the novel The Legend of the Dogman. He's a former faculty member at the University of South Dakota and now a senior market analyst at the Martech Group. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Morning, Ben. Thanks for having us. Sure. Um, thanks for joining History 605. As you know, there's an awful lot of uh, books on the Lakota. Uh, the title of the book is Lakota, an Indigenous History. And you frame everything around Lakota values. So the way the book is organized, it may take a reader a bit to kind of say, well, this is not a narrative based on the view of the United States or typical American history. Why was it important to you to organize the book this way? I don't know if we, well, we wanted to tell a story from uh, as much as possible from Lakota sources and Lakota uh, perspective, but the themes started to kind of develop on their own. They kind of emerged from uh, the research. It was not an intention, maybe, per se, to have these particular themes. It was just clear when we started doing research that these Lakota values are, are the key and even more so than we maybe imagined to begin with. What was your guiding kind of research questions then as you began to uh, ask questions and, and uh, do research on the Lakota culture? So let me uh, let me go back a tiny bit here. So so sure. we both worked with Dr. DeMalley, as you mentioned, Ray DeMalley. And so, mm -hmm. you know, he, he comes from the Americanist tradition of anthropology, which comes all the way from Franz Boas and um, the founder of American anthropology. And... The, the Americanist tradition stresses the importance of understanding history and language um, in order to understand culture. We have studied the language, we've studied the history, we've studied all, all the anthropological texts as well, of course, and um, these themes just emerge, these core values in Lakota culture. And we thought, you know, if we're going to try to tell a story um, that, that, you know, centers the Lakota voice as much as possible, it would be great to do it through the lens of these Lakota values. Um, so try, trying to, you know, explain Lakota history from a Lakota cultural perspective, in a sense. And we, we felt that a lot of the scholarly works out there so far um, didn't do that as much. I mean, Ray, Ray's, Ray's work obviously does. Um, These Have No Ears was one great example of that, his, art, mm -hmm. uh, his uh, article from the 90s. But we felt that a lot of the kind of popular, more popular books about Lakota culture that were meant to be kind of uh, have everything in one place, in a sense, mm -hmm. that a lot of those weren't really doing that and were really more from a kind of Euro-American perspective. And so in particular, I think we were kind of, in a way, responding to Pekka's book. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk oh, okay. a little bit about that, Ronnie. That like, Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Yeah. There were some other works that had come out recently and, you know, uh, by by great historians and, and things like that. But, but we thought with our training, specifically in Lakota culture, that we might be able to tell the story from a different angle, which was more centered in Lakota culture. So how much Lakota do you speak? Not many people here in Finland to practice with, but yeah, at some point, <laughs> some point I think we're, we're 
doing okay. At least I felt that when I was still in Indiana, we practice it a lot uh, with with friends uh-huh. there, and and so right now I would say that at least I am much better in, in tra- translating text to than to conversing in Lakota. But it comes back when you spend some time with Lakota people. It it, it it's somewhere yeah. up here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We've all worked probably a lot. All of Ray's students probably worked a lot more with texts than anything else. But we've also worked on various Lakota language revitalization projects. So we we had a long term project with Red Cloud Indian School on Pine Ridge, um, where we were working on Lakota language curriculum, K through twelve language curriculum, in partnership okay. with the school there. Um, but uh, I, I always say I speak Sweat Lodge Lakota. So I really studied. <laughs> I I studied like ceremonial traditions. And so okay. I can I can understand prayers and songs and things like that. But in terms of conversational, um, it's I've, I've never been able to master that. I can I can understand a bit, but uh, I've never been I've never been very good at speaking other languages. Probably the curse of growing up uh, in a, in America in the 1990s and 2000s or something. Yeah. You know? What would you say is kind of the biggest conceptual difference between, say, English and Lakota? Honey, what do you think? Well, I, I, I don't know what's the difference yeah, between you had to learn English, both, right? But, but for for me, as uh, Finnish is my language, uh, yeah. my, you know, Lakota uh, structure is pretty close to a certain extent to to Finnish uh, how the language is structured. So to me, it was pretty easy to start learning it, and also some of the um, pronunciation, which might be difficult for an English speaker, is easier for me because we have those kinds of sounds as well. So okay. I, uh, I didn't find Lakota, learning Lakota wasn't that difficult to me. But then when it, after three years of uh, lessons in Lakota and then going from classroom Lakota to conversational Lakota with all kinds of different nuances, that's where the difficulties start to emerge. Sure. And of course, with the translations of old texts, uh, there are a lot of uh, nuances that you have to understand and also the different ways of writing the Lakota and so uh, translating those old texts is also in a in a yet another way a big uh, challenge. Like like many cultures, the Lakota culture though is a very slippery thing. You think you kind of have uh, a concept kind of nailed down, but then it organically changes into uh, something slightly different as the Absolutely, adaptations yeah. and so forth continue. And so something you may a concept and a word meaning in the 1840s might be different in 1940. Or even oh yeah, just a definitely. few years later. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a good so example much... by by George Sword about that in early 1900s. Sure. He was saying that that uh, today's youngsters don't understand when we old speak, people speak. Yeah, in fact, I I highlighted that quote. I I pulled that out of the book. This the the mismatch of the concept creep and the communication enculturation disruption between the generations of Lakota speakers in the early 20th century. Um, mm-hmm. And and George Sword said, the young Oglala do not understand a formal talk by an old Lakota because mm-hmm. the white people have changed the Lakota language and the young people speak it as the white people have written it. Sorry, sorry mm-hmm. to explain. Mm-hmm. So he, he's talking about that in the context of what the Oglala mean by God or the Wakan. That's probably a good segue then. And what is meant by what would George Sword or the 19th century Lakota have meant by Wakan? The Lakota religious system or ceremonial system was very, in a way, individualistic, and it was based on visions and revelatory experiences um, within a certain framework of symbols that make up any kind of tradition like that. Um, so each individual would kind of have their own their own tradition in a sense, and they would kind of patronize, I guess, their own kind of specific spirits or deities or whatever you want to call them. And typically, um, when a young man was about the age of puberty, he would go seek a vision, a vision quest, hambaleche api, it's called, um, cry for a vision, um, and would go out alone on a on a hill or some other isolated place away from other human beings and other human contact. And basically, you know, it, the timing could differ depending on what you were there to do or what you were aiming for or whatever. But but you would, uh, you know, you would stay out there for four days and four nights without food or water and basically pray the whole time for a spirit to, to recognize you. Um, and by that, they establish a relationship, kinship being the, one of the, mm-hmm. the most central, you know, symbols or concepts or of, of most importance in Lakota traditions. 
And so you establish a relationship with the spirit being, um, and then that becomes, in a sense, your guardian spirit. Uh, and again, these kind of translations into English are never perfect, but guardian spirit, I think, captures it pretty well in a lot of ways. Um, and then this spirit would be, you know, kind of like your personal deity throughout your life, and you would identify with this spirit um, in different ways. Um, but so it was it was very individualistic in a sense. So to get back to your question, it probably meant something slightly different to most people. But I mean, in general, Wakam means uh, sacred, mysterious, holy, powerful, things like that. And it was more of like a um, an animist, an animist kind of power that uh, it's kind of corny, but similar to like the force in Star Wars, how they talk about the force in Star right. Wars. I mean, it's a similar kind of feel, actually. It's like there's this force, it's called Wakan. It's Wakan, it's the animating force of the universe that makes us everything move, that causes things to happen, that, that makes it so that I can shoot this buffalo, you know, and get my arrow right where it needs to be. Um, it's, a, it's a force that, is in all things uh, that so it therefore unites everything because everything participates in this mm -hmm. uh, sacred animating force of the universe. Um, so that I mean that's kind of mysterious, holy, sacred, powerful. Kind of depends on how on what you're talking about, what it might uh, mean in a specific context. But those are kind of the general ways that you might think of it. And I always love that quote by Sword because basically what he what he's saying there is that you know every all the content from language from the pre-reservation days all of a sudden meant nothing to this younger generation in a sense i mean not in a sense that it meant nothing that cultural things aren't important but those those young people he was talking about had just gotten back from boarding school they were the first generation mm -hmm. to go to boarding school and then they come back to pine ridge and they're not enculturated the way that george sword was where it, when george sword was a young man going on going to war with enemy tribes hunting and ceremonial pursuits that involved that were totally uh centered on that hunting lifestyle that was his entire life and that was the content of his language was because those were the most important things to a male at that time were you know war hunting and uh, ceremonial pursuits aside from family and things like that is of course too but but so all of a sudden you had this younger generation of Lakotas who had just gotten back from boarding school and basically where they were trained to be white people, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and they didn't really know about the, the traditional buffalo hunting um, lifestyle. And suddenly the traditional Lakotas get up there to make a speech in public and the young people don't understand. And the language has changed in terms of structure, but also in terms of the content didn't mean much to those young people. So. I think tribes all over the country experience similar things, but luckily we have such a rich document, uh, documentary record for the Lakota that we can draw from for things like that. In addition, I think sort of my, on his, in his comment on Wakhan, mean referred to, you know, by that time the Bible had been translated to into Lakota, Dakota languages, and the uh, missionaries made, you know, Christian God, Wakhan Hanka, which kind of is a concept for the Lakota, but they try to kind of make it, make it, you know, more familiar, I guess, to the Lakotas and also other texts and how that is incorporated in Lakota religious practices and whatnot. It's an interesting period of time. Well, from Lakota perspective, interesting is maybe not the word, a devastating right. era yeah. of all kinds of uh, forced uh, assimilation and religious, cultural, spiritual, whatever you can think of. So it's in that context, as Dave said, and also in the context of missionary work that this source text or comment needs to be understood. Okay. Well, you, you mentioned kinship. I was wondering if it, maybe it might be helpful just to kind of list off these, these key aspects of their culture and way of life. We have them at the State History Museum in Pierre. Uh, generosity, kinship, courage. I made the claim based on reading your book that it kind of framed it, but you you kind of helpfully pointed out, no, 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 we, we got to that by looking at the evidence and so forth. And then it, it that emerged, those themes emerged, um, which is wonderful. Um, what are the other aspects of, of Lakota culture that the evidence uh, revealed in their practice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave, what we want to try first. I think maybe we didn't express ourselves quite right there, but like, uh, you know, the, these themes have emerged throughout our entire journey 
studying these things, I would say. So mm -hmm. a lot of it, of course, comes from from Ray DeMalley, too, and his kind of, you know, he always, you know, his his dissertation was on kinship. And, and um, so he oh, he taught us, you know, kinship is the central foundation of Lakota culture. But, you know, anywhere you go, anywhere you look, um, you're going to find that that's true. And especially, again, for for the for the um, traditional Lakota people from that time period in the bison hunting period, you know, um, Ella Deloria is a very famous yes. um, Sioux, she Yankton and also some Lakota um, heritage, but she was an ethnographer and a linguist way ahead of her time who did, I think she's the single most important um, scholar of the Lakota ever. Um, and heard the docu the the documentary record that she left behind. All the primary sources are just absolutely invaluable. Um, and she said, you know, and she she worked with all of these very traditional Lakota people who were very elderly at the time, but who had actually lived that buffalo hunting traditional lifestyle before the reservation. And she said, you know, kinship is the absolute heart and soul. It's the foundation of Lakota life and culture. And no one who lived that traditional buffalo hunting way of life would would deny that. No one. Okay. So, I mean, I, I'm pretty confident that that kinship and it also it, you can also tell why how it's so important, because it's used as a metaphor in every other aspect of life, too. Um, and again, speaking mm -hmm. here about, you know, the historical situation um, more than today. I know kinship is still very important today, but because of some of the things that we've outlined in the book, the the Teoshpaye social structure, the, the kinship structure um, eroded in, in many ways when all of a sudden the people were forced to live on reservations and they no longer were able to hunt bison freely and live that nomadic lifestyle. Well, that changed everything. And so they struggled for you know several generations to try to maintain that kin that kinship focus, even though it didn't make as much sense in the reservation context. But I think now you're seeing a lot of people consciously making an effort to go back to that Teoshpaye based extended family based group as being the closest unit, the, the, the most essential unit of society. And it's also writing about more recent history, even today talking with our Lakota friends and we want to take a moment to thank all of them who really share their time time and stories with 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 us that's actually so invaluable for 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 our our book but anyway so uh, talking about with our friends about core Lakota values kinship and being a good relative and being related always comes up mm -hmm. it, it's it's seldom you get into a discussion or or anything you you wouldn't be talking about your relatives and taking care of your relatives and being being a good parent, being a good uncle, you know, uh, grandfather, grandmother, and so on. That's that's just how the Lakota people have been historically, and as Dave said, are even more so now after many many difficult years. Maybe coming back to that kind of mm -hmm. relationality to to the each other, but also to the spirit world and and Waka and what whatnot. So those are that, that's at the center, and and from that you can expand to other things that are key for Lakota culture, generosity, and how you behave towards each other, and and so on and so forth. Let's dive in on an example of that. Um, there's several aspects that you describe in your book: the first encounter with Lewis and Clark, and and then later in 1825, you go into this first encounter that results in a treaty between the Lakota as as the United States is kind of on a treaty expedition up the Missouri River and trying to sort out trade relations with the tribes along the way. Um, they, they use the term the Great Father. And Leavenworth and Lewis and the, the American uh, representatives uh, take that to mean one thing, but they kind of, they don't mean what Meriwether Lewis might have thought they would have meant. What, what do they mean when they say the Great Father? At least they don't mean subjugation, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't acknowledge that this guy is now above us. Instead, they are evoking a kinship term, a relationship, creating some kind of a dialogue, a way to behave towards each other. And and it's not uncommon at all. And we can see it did, um, go on throughout history that they are talking about mm -hmm. father, whether it's agent or it's, it's, it's the president. 
but it's a, it's about kinship and a relationship and how to behave towards each other. Maybe in th- that in the instance they were hoping the great father would would give them uh, provisions and 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 so on. A kinship term is not just a word or a series of sounds, but it comes with an entire complex of behaviors that are reciprocal. So if I call you great father, that implies a relationship and it implies you have to relate to me in specific ways and I have to relate to you in specific ways. And so we, we hear, you know, we hear this kind of thing, like Ronnie said, from the earliest sources, you know, if a if a Sioux uh, or Lakota person, Western Sioux or Lakota person was traveling on a hunting expedition and their their family group met up with another Lakota group, you know, the first thing you have to do was figure out how do how am I related to these people? And and then that links you into that social group and gives you all of the ways that you have to behave to be a proper good Lakota person. Um, and so in a sense, I think calling um, U.S. government representatives great father was was pretty savvy of Lakotas politically, because like Ronnie was saying, it implied in a sense a dependence relationship, not in terms of power, but in terms of, you know, you provide us with the things that we want, essentially. Um, and so it's kind of a savvy political move. Um, I would say that Lakota people also used kinship terms in the spiritual realm, as I mentioned the vision quest as an example, or crying for a vision earlier. Um, in, in those kinds of contexts, humans would refer to the sacred or spiritual beings as grandfather or grandmother. And that was even more of like a respect, respectful um, um, dependence relationship, you know, like uh, recognize me, you know, help me, help me to live a good life that my people may live. Um, so, so calling the spirits grandfather or grandmother was also a way of uh, invoking a kinship relationship, which then um, established things in a good way and, and kind of let people know how they could, uh, you know, interact with one another or even right. beyond from one from human to spirit even. Isn't Queen Victoria referred to as a grandmother? Yes, she is. Unchi Makha Tramakoche or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Grandmother's land or some, uh, something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 What I was going to say actually is that in those early early times also in the uh, 1825 treaty and also 1851, for example, they calling the president as a um, father also implies that, you know, they have co- uh, made a treaty where the Lakotas allow white people to go through their lands and get compensation for that. And because the great father is the great father, he, he as a father, he has to give those compensations as, as promised in the treaty. So it's a relationship. Okay. We give you access to our lands or through our lands, and you give us these provisions that we need. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not an idea that, okay, now we, now the Lakotas are in a lower status, they're dependent on the, on the, on the U.S. government. That 1825 discussion, I thought, was also interesting because of their they had just watched the United States Army nearly be defeated by the Urikara, and they weren't mm-hmm. all impressed with that United States Army. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> in nearly losing to the Urikara, they they almost decided, you guys, had you lost, you wouldn't be worth even talking to, mm-hmm. because yeah, you, that you're was... clearly not strong enough to deal with us. The Ashley affair. It was a yeah. smaller group of uh, of fur traders, and they were attacked at the Urikara villages. But then later they came back up the river with reinforcements with, I think, Atkinson. Yes. And, and, and at that point, it was interesting, the Lakotas teamed up with the U.S. military to punish the Arikaras, as they mm-hmm. put it. And in that case, they routed the Arikaras, the Arikaras fled the villages, and the Lakotas wanted to press on and wipe out the Arikaras. But the U.S. military held back. And then the Lakotas felt that the U.S. military was weak because they didn't pursue when they had the advantage. So pretty interesting. I mean, the implications of that are very, very interesting, I think. In another source, I've found that uh, the first July 4th that was celebrated in what is today South Dakota was at this treaty event on the July 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th. And there's the Oglala, there's some Sakanju there, and a lieutenant uh, Harney reads the Declaration of Independence to the right. Oglala uh, in, in this, and they have games and horse races and so forth. They get along pretty well, uh, but there's a big debate within the 
uh, Sakanju and the Oglala. What is and the, and this debate is with the Arikara and the previous war is part of that debate. What's the other thing that they're debating about? I wonder if you could get into that scene a little bit. Do you mean like in terms of um, kind of the ongoing question of how to deal with with right. encroaching Euro Americans? Right. Yeah. Right. So I mean that's uh that's still uh that's still a debate that rages to this very day. I think you yeah. know I mean it's uh you know in one sense it was like fight or flight in a sense, but then mm -hmm. it was also so so some so some people were kind of isolationist about it early on and were like well we'll just kind of keep our distance, but eventually that that option didn't really work. Some people because because white people were encroaching from all sides, essentially, especially after the Civil War and uh, as the 1800s move on from the Civil War. Um, but uh, then, you know, then you had some like Red Cloud and Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull who wanted to fight, uh, or at least at some points in their lives, decided to fight. Red Cloud had prob was probably the most successful in many ways in that um, pursuit, but he was 10 years uh, older than Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull and the mm -hmm. famous Little Bighorn, but Red Cloud's war in the 1860s, essentially Red Cloud fought the army to a standstill and they gave in to all of his demands. And then he basically retired from being a warrior and became a politician, essentially. But the, so then, the, you know, it's it's either it becomes the decision kind of becomes fight or get along, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and so and then you have uh, intermarriage and you have uh, people of mixed ancestry coming into the picture as well. So it's an extremely complex um, situation that was changing all the time, but uh, that still to this day, you know, you have some some folks who are kind of more the isolationist type, uh, you know, like they white people have their ways and we have our ways and we don't really mix too much. And then you have more of like an assimilationist kind of uh, approach where where there's I don't know if assimilationist is the right word but where you have the combination of white culture and Native American culture and things like that so mm -hmm. it's a very um, yeah it's still to this day uh, something that you know different people feel differently about I think sure yeah and if you think about 19th century uh, we shouldn't even be talking at that time about a united Lakota kind of approach or how would I say the different groups were so independent. Mm -hmm. There's no overall leader who would decide, okay, let's go this way. They could decide, it's even on a Tioshpaya level, how to, uh, you know, react towards the, the whites. But that said, they they all the time try to kind of negotiate with them, themselves, say, different ways to approach uh, the, the Americans, whether it's through warfare or in, uh, negotiations or whatever, but it's still an ongoing kind of, how to restructuring their society to meet these challenges. So it's not like they are just there sitting and waiting what's going to happen. They are actively rea reacting also proactively, uh, changing their societal structures, like making sitting bull and crazy or, or war chiefs in, in, in the 1970s, which had never been done before. But also like half of the hunk papas were isolationist, half of them, let's, you know, half is just a word here, but uh, and half of them wanted to trade with the whites, some wanted to trade with the British, and so on. So it's mm -hmm. we have to see the Lakota people in the 19th century in in many different ways and many different approaches. But the truth is that a, a division happened early on between these different groups, and it, it started to grow and grow as things started to go worse. And and when especially the Americans tried to make one Lakota guy a chief, overall chief of others which did not work. It was not right. part of Lakota system. Mm -hmm. So really complex situation. That's that's an important point, Ronnie. Like, in, I think we make that point in the book too, that like to say yeah. the Lakota nation or the Sioux nation is really kind of a misnomer, especially in those early days, because they were basically um, small family units that uh, were called Teoshpaes, which were Basically, typically a group of brothers was the backbone of a Teoshpai and then their families, their wives and children. Several generations would be in a Teoshpai, but we're talking 50 to 200 people typically, depending on, you know, where they were in the time of the year and the availability of resources. But they would come together into larger groups where you'd have multiple Teoshpais coming together in June and July for the, the annual Sundance and also for... The, the big communal bison hunts at the peak of the summer. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, but, but, but basically they were very much these kind of like uh, autonomous independent groups that um, the, the smallest unit was the Teoshpai, which was, you know, like I said, 50 to 200 people that would be together throughout the year. Um, so, so it's very difficult to say, you know, the Lakota policy on X was this because there's just so many right. diverging opinions. And you can see that to this day, you know, there's, you know, whether even, even if you say Ogallala's, uh, compared to Sichangu's, compared to um, uh, compared to Hunkpapa's, you know they're very different. They all feel like they're independent nations, and uh, and even within the Ogallalas, let's say, you still to this day have Tioshbae based groups or at least affiliations. They might not live in the traditional way anymore, but or you know the the traditional social structure anymore, um, but they definitely still feel independent and autonomous um, from from other uh, family groups um, at Pine Ridge, for instance. It, yeah, it strikes me that the treaty making really is an exercise in futility because of no one person. Well, the United States government thinks, okay, Red Cloud, you're, you're speaking on behalf of all of these Sioux tribes, which was a fiction. I mean, Sitting Bull yeah. has no idea that the Treaty of 1868 has been signed. He's yep. oblivious to this. And so yep. he, it's pretty kind of silly to expect him to behave according to a treaty. He has no idea it's been signed and that, and that he would probably be offended that Red Cloud is speaking for him. I don't think Red Cloud even tried to speak for, right, for the Northern right. Lakota. So right. he, he was speaking for his people and maybe even not for the whole. Well, at a certain point, Red, Red Cloud becomes, you know, an Oglala, at mm -hmm. least the face of Oglala resistance and, and leadership. But there are also uh, places where the white people are baffled. And why is not Red Cloud signing this treaty before? Because Red Cloud says he has to go and talk to this and this guy. And the white people are, why? He's the, you know, the big chief. Red Cloud needs to talk to other chiefs and other, other people. He can't make the decisions on his own, even as the great Red Cloud in 1868. So yeah. these structures are... are uh, valuable and they are acted upon uh, according to Lakota customs. Even later on during the Crook Commission and whatnot, Sitting Bull is not saying anything because he's not elected as a speaker of the people. American Horse instead is uh, speaking in behalf of his people. And these kinds of things are often, when you asked earlier on, why, why did we think we needed to write this book? These, kind of, these kinds of things are often missed in this mm -hmm. traditional Euro-American based narratives of the Lakota. Who would you say is the first American official who recognizes these profound cultural changes and tries to formulate a policy based on that? I don't know that I could think of anybody. Is there somebody that comes to mind? Oh, the really difficult question. I, I think there are people who recognize these things and understood them, but could they make the actual government officials in D.C. to understand that? That's exactly. a different question. Dave, would you have anybody in mind? I think that there are several people who understood Lakota culture better than others who wrote about these things from the early days. So not necessarily government or military, but I think Edwin Denig yeah. really, really, really understood Nate, not just Lakota, but Nate, he was married to an Assiniboine woman. He was a fur trader on the Missouri, upper Missouri for like 40 years, something like that. Okay. I think he has a very nuanced understanding of of native culture at that time in that place. Mm -hmm. But again, he's writing in an 1840, 1850. So, you know, he says things that we would consider offensive today, but uh, at the time it was, it was the norm. So you got to read it with a grain of salt essentially and understand yeah. the, the historical context. Um, in terms of military, uh, I'd always read and heard that Harney and uh, Crook really understood um because again, because they had so much interaction with them um, over the years that Harney and Crook especially um, kind of understood and in a sense respected Lakota culture, even though Harney and Crook are vilified in some ways um, as, as being quote unquote Indian fighters. But in a sense, I think that they understood and Crook, they did bring Crook in in the 18, late 1880s on some of those treaties because he knew how to get them to sign essentially because he understood exactly these things that we're talking about, about the U S government desperately wanted one individual to be a mouthpiece for all of those people. So they could say, sign here. Now we're good. Now we're legally binding essentially, which of course, all of those concepts were essentially foreign to the Lakota at that time. Yeah. I would say uh, I, there was one other, 
one other government official I was thinking of, but it's not it's not coming to me. But I would say in those days, I mean those those names for me would kind of stand out as people who who cared enough to like actually understand a little bit about the culture. I'm also thinking about a couple of agents who were long-term agents like Gallagher and, and maybe McLaughlin, but they did use that knowledge really to gain politically themselves and sure. and not, not, not maybe, well, to enact U.S. government policies on the Lakotas. Right. And, and we're good at kind of causing di- uh, diversity, uh, not di- divisions within mm-hmm. Lakota community, especially McLaughlin used uh, the problems between you know, different uh, groups like uh, Indian police and, and the Shedding Bull and, and so on. Mm-hmm. So some of these agents, I'm sure, understood the system and missionaries maybe too. But yeah. their goal, of course, was totally different than, right. you know. To provide mm-hmm. Wakan a different meaning, yes. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, I, I found your concept, I think it was chapter four about uh, warfare and treaty making. Uh, and the role of a young man in all of this and how honor was gained, what was the thing to do. And it's, it strikes me that they're, these young men in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and certainly in the 90s are now caught with, and they're trapped in a way because of the declining buffalo bison population. And there's this discussion about how to treat the is is counting coup or committing uh, these acts of bravery in combat against the white man? Does that add to your honor? And they have this discussion and debate about that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this. Uh, in in yeah. some ways, it's it's kind of a discussion about is the white man a human uh, in their in their <laughs> well, framework? Um, maybe, yeah. yeah. But that's also a good example of how the Lakotas tried to change and adapt to the situation. It's not. And making uh, the white people enemies also shows a different time, a change in time in a way. They needed to do something. They tried to change how they wage war, but still the individual gaining, getting coup, it's so important. They had to come up with a way to how to make this warfare more efficient against the uh, Americans. And making them enemies was one of those. It's, it's an interesting yeah. thing. Yeah, be, before that... Um... As we've talked about before so far, gaining honor through military, through combat, basically, um, and, you know, counting coup and, you know, all those things with enemy tribes, that was one of the main ways for a male in that traditional lifestyle to gain wealth, prestige, to make themselves a big name in their community, to make themselves desirable as a husband, to make a career for yourself as a as a war leader, but then also maybe later as a political leader. So, I mean, it was essential to the to male gender roles, if you want to call it that, to uh, the, this warfare avenue. Um, and so uh, up until a certain point, you know, fighting against the white person didn't gain you any honor. And so there was no incentive for uh, Lakota young men to go to war against white people until they passed this uh, war pipe around famously in the 1860s in anticipation of Red Cloud's war. And all of a sudden it was like, well, we're, we're basically recategorizing white people now, putting them under the umbrella of other enemy tribes so that now they are included and can participate in the, the coup system. And so that really you know, incentivized young Lakota men to, to go to war against white people, essentially. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, like Ronnie said, like a shift in a particular time um, that uh, says a lot about the, the story or this says a lot about L- Lakota um, history and culture. And that, that seemed to me kind of a running conversation over the course of a decade or so, right? It, it, and I, I pulled out this yeah. quote here, the Oglala chief Blackhawk. In 1854, mm-hmm. he says, we whip these nations, meaning the Kiowa and the Crow, out of the way. And in this, we did what the white men do when they want the land of the Indians. Yeah, I think that is a really good quote in the sense that it captures what the Lakotas think and what they know and how they have seen already what happens when the Americans come. Uh And they know it's going to happen to them as well. Yet at the same time, it also tells us what how they view themselves in relations to other tribes. You know, you can't, without using any, you know, how would I say, Euro-American language, you could say that Lakotas at that time were expansionists, 
people going towards the West, partly because the white men were pushing them, but partly also because of resources are are dwindling and they have to move after the buffalo herds and so on. Right. So definitely moving moving towards the West in a con- conquering way, let's put it that way. And And they were the great power on the upper Missouri at that time south of the Blackfeet, you know, um, once once smallpox and other crowd crowd diseases really decimated the um, the sedentary tribes like the Arikaras and the Mandans and the Hidatsas who were hit much harder by smallpox because they're cooped up in Earth Lodge villages and not out on the open plains riding horse riding a horse. So especially once that happened, then the Lakotas for several decades there became you know, from most of the 1800s became the great power uh, on that part of the upper Missouri. And so they were used to dictating the terms um, and to the other tribes. Um, and, and so then when, when the U.S. when, when the U.S. Uh, presence increased, especially post-Civil War, then all of a sudden it was like essentially, you know, two titans coming at each other in a sense. And then that's when all these discussions about do we intermarry with them or do we fight them? You know, that's when yeah. those conversations really, really started to intensify right. in every way. So it's very contingent on choices that they're making, right? Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that, uh, which is no big surprise to people practicing history or anthropology, that choices that are made and uh, drive certain things down yeah, a direction. I mean, when you look at the different winter counts, which we have mm. been using a lot, how the attitudes start to change in that too, and where the focus starts to change toward more Western tribes, for example, in, in, in warfare, and also how the white people kind of change from trading companions to enemies. It can be seen also in those tradi- uh, Lakota sources. Yeah, well, that was the thing that drew me to, really got me interested in your book was your use of the winter counts and your use of the, I've, I've done another show on the winter counts, a couple of them actually, and they, it seems to me that they're perfect primary sources as long as you can interpret them, you know, in the way that they were written to be uh, in their meaning that was intended at the time. That's always the trick, right? How do you two, when you're working on this book and when you've worked with those sources for other projects, how do you kind of assess, am I, am I understanding the meaning properly here? What's your path to, to getting to that comfort level? Yeah, you can just look at the winter counts and see just pictures about things and so on. But that's, of course, not what they are about. They are uh, usually made by or only represent one smaller unit. It's not a winter count for all Lakota, not even for the Oglala. It can be a Tioshpaya or whatnot. So they are really sometimes a family stories and they can be about a um, small event like fighting the Brulez on over a ice at one year. Or they can talk about extensive things. They can talk about, you know, first time meeting a white woman. But of course, like any source that you have, you can't just I mean, take it for face value. You have to, as a historian, a scholar, have kind of source criticism as well and compare maybe to other sources. For example, tribal, you know, looking at different Tioshpais, how they have moved around and whatnot. You can, you can look at the winter counts and then you can look at some of the sources, even, you know, government sources to kind of corroborate these things. So <clears throat> seldom do we only look at winter counts. We look at oral histories as well. And we look at, uh, you know, so as I said, sometimes government records where they have met some people or, you know, there was this Warren expedition, for example, who met a group of Lakotas herding buffalo, herding buffalo, taking care of buffalo at some point. And we can then go to winter counts if this is mentioned in a win- winter count. Actually, that was not. But still, uh, no, I'm sorry. The Warren expedition actually was mentioned in one of the winter counts. So th- that is the uh, way to approach these things as a family stories. And then, of course, also looking at religious or uh, belief systems and how how that is, those things are seen seen in these texts. They- yeah. Yeah, I think winter counts in some ways are like a great example of very local history. You know, like extremely local, t- the history of this particular Teoshbaye. And if you know the story of the Teoshbaye in terms of the families that made it up and where they were and at what time periods, then you can really use winter counts pretty effectively. But again, you always have to corroborate them with other sources, I think, to do your due diligence, like Ronnie was saying. Mm-hmm. So I think that they're really good for that extremely local stuff. But then also you can take a step back and get really broad themes also from 
winter counts. So if you compare and contrast, you know, there's a great book, The Year the Stars Fell by yes. Candace Green um, and Christina Burke, which is all the winter counts that we, or the, the winter counts that we have the most from, or the most, you know, complete winter counts. And if you kind of look and compare and contrast those, you can see really general themes like, oh, well, most of these talk about warfare, you know, 50% of the time or something like that. So obviously, you know, war, intertribal warfare was an important theme or, you know, in the 1830s, we start to hear about different, you know, new diseases or things like that. So you can also kind of get really general themes, but also then really, really super local uh, kind of um, history as well from those. Yeah. So. yeah. <clears throat> and about those local histories too, you can also more than anywhere else, maybe see histories about, uh, you know, women and, you know, completely mundane things, you know, a tree falling on, on somebody who was carrying water and talking about daily lives of people, which is something is really missing in historical literature. And kind of, we do have some of that, but it would have been interesting to give even, get into even more into, you know, that kind of stuff, but, you know, can't do everything in one book, but, but there's a lot of stuff in, in the winter counts that can still be explored. I'm, I'm, Pretty impressed by some of these winter counts. Yeah. yeah, you do have to be careful with winter counts. So yeah. I think as as a scholar and not just like you know, just like just like if you interview one person and then write a book about what this one person said, basically, you know, you want to try to interview several people and see what kind of themes come out. So it's not just like a one off kind of thing, but definitely winter counts can be incredibly valuable, and I think they've been underutilized in the literature. Well, I was first introduced to them when I read uh, Pekalim and Lenin's book, Lakota America. And mm-hmm. so I, I drew back to that, got into the footnotes, saw the book published by the Smithsonian Institute, and have had Christina on the show. So she was a few episodes oh, ago to okay, talk yeah. about oh, great. her book yeah. and putting that together. And that was a that was a great uh, discovery. She's also, um, we had another guest on the show who's, Winter Count Christina helped link up back to the family that created it. It was probably yeah. one of the more unexpected events to ever happen on uh, History 605 was when uh, I, I became <laughs> nice. kind of emotionally cool. uh, cheering this family on with with getting connected yeah. with their genealogy and, and so forth. Yeah. That was really great. Um, and there are still families on reservations today that keep winter counts today, which yeah. I think is incredibly cool. And some, in some cases, they went dormant for a while and came back. But in other cases, they have been continuously kept by some of the most traditional families, which yes. is just awesome, yes. inspiring. Well, you mentioned this woman, Ella Deloria. Um, she seems like maybe the maybe a founding scholar in this line of work in a lot of ways for um Ocheti Shikoi, a wider scholarship and so forth. What can you tell the audience a little bit about Ella Deloria um, and uh, how she yeah. got started? Yeah, um, I've been out of the I've been out of the academic life for a couple of years, so I'm a little rusty, but I'll do my best. Sure, um, sure. So, so Ella Deloria was born into a very prominent family. Um, she has Yankton descendants and also um, uh, Lakota descendants, I believe. And um, her father was one of the uh, very important early priests, basically. He was a, a Dakota or a Lakota priest. Uh, I believe he was a deacon. Um, but anyways, he comes from this very important family um, uh, at, uh, at Standing Rock is where they eventually settled, Wakapala mm-hmm. and, at Standing Rock. And um, so Ella, Ella Deloria grew up being an interesting, uh, you know, it's interesting because she is mixed blood, you know, she comes from mixed ancestry. There was Euro-American intermarriage in her family. Um, but a lot of that early on, especially was diplomatic, you know, to do that. It was a diplomatic move to do that. Um, but anyway, so she grew up as a, a prominent member uh, family in this community. Her, her father was, uh, you know, very traditional, but also was uh, a priest. Um, and so she was very interested in, in, religion or spirituality, but also from a very early age, she had this like ethnographer's interest in culture and traditions and things like that. Um, eventually she hooks up with Franz Boaz at Columbia Teachers College, where mm-hmm. she went to get a degree. And I think her actual degree was in phys ed, I think, which is kind of interesting. She had a degree in phys ed uh, from Columbia Teachers College, I believe. But uh, so um, but then she she ends up working with Franz Boaz, the father of American anthropology. And 
basically Boaz kind of takes her under his wing and trains her personally to be kind of like his arm in the field in a sense. Um, he trains her to be uh, an Americanist anthropologist. So to focus on language, culture, and history, basically, yeah, yeah. to really learn. And she already knew the language and was very fluent in all three dialects. Uh-huh. And uh, basically, Boaz, she had a wonderful relationship with Franz Boaz. She looked up to Boaz as a father figure, and they had a very warm fam- kinship type of relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, Boaz uh, sends her out into the field, and she, she basically spends m- the bulk of her adult life um, on the reservations doing field work, interviewing um, very traditional people who were who were at that time were getting old and dying that generation was dying off and so mm-hmm. she documented so much priceless cultural uh, day and linguistic data especially and it's available at the the, AP, the American Philosophical Society there's some of her stuff in the Boaz papers and then there's also a lot of her stuff in um, um, at the Dakota Indian Foundation, which I believe was in uh, Chamberlain. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so, uh, yeah, okay. it's been a while since I've been out that way, but but Chamberlain. So some of her papers are there. Okay. But also, I I believe that I gave my entire collection or a, a, a digital copy of my entire collection of her materials to the, uh, the Ogallala Tribal College. Um, so. Okay. Oh, well, see. So I think they also probably should have a, a, a set of her documents there, but just an incredible thousands and thousands and thousands of pages that are absolutely priceless snapshots in time uh, from the most knowledgeable of the ver- of the oldest and most traditional people who live that buffalo hunting lifestyle and were very fluent in the most traditional form of Lakota. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, yeah, just documented all that stuff. And, and so much of the kind of cultural and linguistic revitalization projects that we see on reservations nowadays, anything involving the Lakota, her work is essential to that. So, I mean, she just, I can't sing her praises enough. She's an inspiration to me. And I feel like she doesn't always get the respect that she deserves as an anthropologist in her own right. Because she was also very humble, which is a Lakota virtue as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she was extremely humble about it. And she considered Boaz a true anthropologist, but she didn't consider herself as such. But I think that she was, I think she deserves a lot more recognition than she got, especially in her lifetime. Her Dakota way of life had just been published, edited by Ray Demali and Thierry Wary. I don't know how to pronounce Thierry, but French name, but just came out last year. Ella Deloria's Water Lily, I think, is an excellent, excellent introduction for anyone who's interested in that traditional Lakota way of life. Um, it's it's basically a historical fiction. The basis of it is her deep, deep, deep knowledge of that way of life and the culture. But it's written, it reads like a novel. It's just okay. a, a pleasure to read. And so anybody who is interested in learning what that lifestyle was like and about Lakota culture and history, I think uh, Ella Deloria's Water Lily is a great place to start. I've often recommended her book, uh, Speaking, is it Speaking in Indian? It's a short little Speaking book. Speaking of Indians. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Indians. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's another great one. Yep. It's it's a quick primer on some of the fundamentals. Uh, yeah, and then of course her nephew is Vine Deloria, so Vine Deloria Jr., who is the most famous Native American intellectual probably ever mm-hmm. of all time, and whose Custer died for your sins was just kind of his entry into the national conversation, if not the international conversation, on indigenous issues. So. Yes, and Vine Deloria Jr. has come up several times in our in my podcast as well for. Uh, mm-hmm. A wide variety of things. He 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 uh, mowed a wide swath through all of this. Um, Absolutely. But I, I mm-hmm. was glad to see your praise of Ella and use of Ella Deloria's work. Uh, that's influential on him and on the rest of us. Not too long before your book came out, another book uh, by another Finn hit the bookshelves, uh, Pekka Himalinens, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Lakota America. And he talks about how the Lakota were, in some ways, I think he used the a uh, bit of a term. We were a few minutes ago talking about these two great powers, the Lakota and the United States. Uh, that's the sense of his argument is that the Lakota were a great power. What did you think of his book? And uh, when you saw it come out, or maybe you knew it was coming out, and did you, uh, doggone it, he beat us to the punch. We're, <laughs> we're doing the same thing. And, and history sometimes is a bit of a race. So No, it, it was not a problem. Actually, Pekka invited me to, to a workshop to work on his manuscripts many years ago. So oh, okay. Uh, 
I did know that he was running it. Beck, of course, is a colleague of mine from Helsinki originally, now in Oxford, yeah. England. But I've, I've known Becca for many years. And he obviously comes to this thing from a little bit different perspective than we do. His previous book, Comanche Empire, Comanche Empire, of course, develops an idea of Comanche as an, an, as an empire. And he, in a way, brings that to the conversation about the Lakota. And his focus is, of course, earlier times than ours. He ends at, 18, at Little Bighorn, 1876, basically. Has a little bit of epilogue after that. So he talks a lot about the 17th century and early trading parts and whatnot, which has not been studied that much. But he maybe looks at Lakota culture a little bit more traditionally anyways and, and trying to develop the idea that they were an empire as well, operating maybe in his mind more in a Euro-American sense than in our, our way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Too much, I don't want to criticize a colleague and countryman too much, but there are some uh, differences of opinion about how the Lakota culture is uh, structured or what are the basic ideas of Lakota culture in, in connection with the whites. And, and, and also when he talks about the earlier part, he basically talk, talks actually about the Dakota without making a difference because he, the Lakotas emerge only later on. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some things that I am of different opinion that Becca, but I don't want to criticize more than that or comment more. Maybe they want to say something. Yeah, let, let me add them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Pekka is a is an excellent historian, and that book is a great work in so many ways. And our our book is you know, a conversation with his, as, as all academic writing is kind of mm-hmm. a conversation on what other people are saying about the same topic. So, so we feel like, you know, his, his book is definitely uh, worth reading in a, in a, in a great work. And he's a great historian. We hope our book will be as popular as his book because yeah. his book has yeah. sold a lot of copies. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think that, um, you know, as being students of Ray DeMalley, we always, really, really highlighted the, like what our book tries to do. Like we, we want to tell a story of Lakota history from Lakota cultural perspectives as much as possible and use Lakota key cultural traditions and symbols as a lens to view the story. Mm-hmm. And we feel like our book does that a little bit more than Pekka's book does, I think. Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, again, you know, a lot of respect for him and, uh, and congratulations on the success of his book. And, and we're all kind of in conversation and in dialogue through our work as scholars are. So, yeah, and I, I would be interested in seeing somebody's comments who are read them both. Have they learned more, you know, by combining right. Pekka's approach and ours, and what kind of uh, discussion emerges from those two books that are slightly different in their approach and, and methods too? So, mm-hmm. looking forward to a review in some journal where them, you know, a parallel. Yeah, mm-hmm. perhaps perhaps we can make that happen. If if you wanted a word about, well, uh, Pekka uses the word power a lot. If you wanted a word about power, what would a what would a Lakota of the nineteenth century would it be Wakan? What what how might they capture that sentiment? I mean, he uses the word empire to in a Western sense about power. I would say it's not centralized power. Right, decentralized power, mm-hmm. decentralized action yeah food for thought huh yeah so you're, you're asking like what what would a lakota word be for power yes i think it would be some kind of wakan or washichun shichun uh, some form of that which is you know shichun is uh every every person has a shichun it's given to them at birth it's like a a great example from uh albert whitehat's work uh who is great Sichangu linguist and educator, um, uh, but he says, if you work, if you write a book, you know, uh, and you put a lot of your hard work and effort and blood, sweat, and tears into that book, you leave a little part of yourself in that book, and that's Shichun. Okay. So I really like that way of describing it. It's a little different from how George Sword might have described it, but but I think I think a word would be yeah something like Shichun or Washichun or Wakan, some kind of derivation of those. But uh, basically, for me, it would be kind of like influence, you know, be, mm-hmm. the, the ability to influence people, to have charisma, because for, for Lakota political leaders, especially in that buffalo hunting period, that was 
all they had. They couldn't force people to do things. They didn't really have a formal, you know, police or um, formal military that, you know, could, you know, uh, force everyone to do things. You had to do things by getting people to agree with you and by making good arguments and making good decisions and by showing that you put the people ahead of your own individual um, gain or your own individual prestige or something like that. So, so I think that, uh, it would be some, yeah, some form of those terms, but it kind of like the ability to influence charisma, that certain something that you can't put your finger on that is immaterial, you know? Um, but I, but I'm sure that's quite different than how Pekka is, is using the term power in a kind of imperialist sense or whatever, or what have you. But for me, I think that, that that would be more of a cultural way of thinking about it. That's what I mean by decentralized power. That is not right. a centralized power unit making centralized decisions. So, okay, let's become an empire and and create this what he calls Lakota America. Yeah, which uh, to me is really not a concept for the Lakota at the time. Yeah, well, uh, Sitting Bull and Red Cloud certainly had that charisma, that influence, that power. Most times, not always, but most times, I guess it was something that could be ephemeral too. Well, gentlemen, uh, Randy, Dave, thank you so much for joining History 605. And again, the book, Lakota, An Indigenous History, it's it's spelled L-A-K-H-O-T-A, Lakota, An Indigenous History, is published by University of Oklahoma Press and uh, was out last year in 2022. Thank you, gentlemen, for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you for having us. It was great. Thanks so much, Ben. This was a pleasure. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.